Athletic Brewing. I cracked open an Upside Dawn Golden Athletic Brew. And let me say this, no matter what you're looking for in a great non-alcoholic beer, the answer is always athletic. Great flavor, it's athletic. Award-winning styles, it's athletic. Huge variety, it's athletic. Fit for all times. That's a registered trademark, guys. Enjoy them anytime, anywhere, without ever slowing down your summer. Beach days, music festivals, swim meets, camping, late nights, early mornings, literally wherever summer takes you. And here's the best part to me, zero hangovers the next day. Mm -hmm. This summer, ask for the only non-alcoholic beer or brew you need to know, Athletic. Head to askforathletic.com to find it near you and use code TA2024 to get 15% off your first online order. That's code TA2024 at checkout for 15% off your first order. Near beer. Exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company. Fit for all times. The Athletic. Mark Chapman, welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Coming up, we're going to be joined by George Culkin, who is amongst the fans at Wembley on a balmy summer's evening for the match against Andorra. And we'll then bring him back down to earth again to talk about Newcastle after the club released that lengthy statement attempting to defend their approach in the summer transfer window. I'll speak with our Everton writer, Greg O'Keefe, who has the latest on the future of James Rodriguez. And also the Athletic's Norwich City writer, Michael Bailey, will tell us how Daniel Farker has been getting on with his lengthy international break to-do list. Let's start with the Athletics' George Culkin, though. Uh, we'll talk Newcastle in a while. You were at the England game yesterday uh, against Andorra, covering the game from a fan's perspective. Before yesterday, when was the last time you'd been at an England game? Oh, my God. That is a question. It'll be back when I reported on them for the, for the time, so we're going back... 10, 14, 15 years. I've needed that time in rehab, effectively. <laughs> so the experience yesterday, did that did that feel different to the last time you went, which you can't even remember? Yes, very different. I mean, you know, the idea of being there, being there last night was about sort of the contrast with the final, I suppose, in England's first, first game kind of back at Wembley. But yes, I mean, that was a very different, it was a very different experience back then. It was, I mean... Um, I sort of volunteered to give England up, which was, you know, not the first or last time I've committed career, um, Harry Curry. But, but, um, <laughs> but it was back then. I, I sort of loved being at the games, and I, you know, I loved that experience. I loved being at tournaments, but I didn't like all the bullshit that came came with the sort of England experience. The, you know, the bloated sense of expectation and the. Uh, the kind of arrogance with it, and I'm including from our side in the media, big time, big time. Yeah, yeah. But I did kind of fall in love again with England a bit in the summer. I mean, I really did, and so I sort of wanted to be there and and feel it. But you know, the, I guess the the point is, you can't really fall in love with qualification campaigns, can you? I mean, you know what's going to happen. England are going to finish top. They might not lose a game. They might win every game, but none of that really matters. And it was, yeah, it was a very different atmosphere. Very different atmosphere last night, very benign and kind of pretty pointless, really. 
Was it nice? No, I don't think I would say. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't far off nice. I mean, I think that's as close as England get to nice. It was a it was a school holiday. It, you could you had that sense of it being the last day of the school holidays, and there was a lot of sort of excite, excitable people there, kids mainly. And I spoke to a few people, and there was that sense that the impact that England made in the summer was, you know, was there for kind of all to see. And I felt it, and I'm sure you felt it, we all felt it. But certainly there's been an impact on kids and and children, which is what Gareth Southgate spoke about before the tournament, what he wanted to happen. And in the treatment given out to to Saka last night, his name was, was cheered the loudest before the match. You know, what, what, when he got off the bus and he's shown on the big screen when his name was read out in the team once, twice before kickoff. And there seems to have been this sort of extraordinary action to, to, to sort of what happened. These are players changing the world in a very meaningful and significant sense, which is something that I absolutely love. I've made a joke in the piece that I've written about this is that for all the stuff that they can change, they can't change a World Cup qualifying match against Andorra. <laughs> into being something that it's not which is vital and and kind of important and alive i mean we should we should feel very happy about that and grateful that there's no jeopardy you know really for england but there isn't jeopardy and so you don't have that sense of adrenaline and of course there's not people fighting to get into the stadium there's nothing wrong with some of these games then catering to a family audience to give kids their first taste of of a football match in nice surroundings and I, I say that you know from working on the 100 the, the cricket competition here that was new and trying to get a family audience and you know maybe it is because I'm nearly 48 and a dad and I'm not a 25 year old lad who wants to drink 10 pints and dress up as a banana at a one day game with four of my mates family audiences are important to sport sometimes so this is a big positive of of something like this those kids who supported Saka or put something on the Marcus Rashford mural in in withington as my my seven-year-old daughter did this is their opportunity to then go and see those players they've tried to support during the summer yeah absolutely and that's a beautiful it's a beautiful story and i want more of that i mean i suppose in football we we have this sort of contradiction don't we we want a loud atmosphere we want raucousness we want that sense of hostility when an, an opposition team comes to play in our stadium at the same time we don't want to alienate people from being able to come to football we do need to break the chains with the past with England because you know we saw only 57 days ago that the people who threw chairs in Charleroi the people who were on the streets when tear gas was thrown in Marseille they're still around they're still here and you know I don't want that and you know I feel sickened when you know there are chants in the stadium there's still a few sort of chants of no surrender last night there was still the odd you know during the national anthem there's still the odd bit of that but I, I, I think the great thing about this team is that they do represent a new kind of England and it's it's young and it's diverse and um, it's socially aware. It's it, They're very much aware of their social responsibilities. And I'm really proud of that. And I'm old, you know, I'm older than you, but I'm really proud of that. That's what I want England to represent. And the fact that they have had such an impact on kids and children is is kind of a really beautiful thing. And there comes a point where it's not our game anymore. And I don't mean that in a giving up on it, but it becomes it becomes the next generations and they have a chance to shape it in a way that's pretty profound, I think. But then most of us don't want every game to sound like we're at a kid's birthday in a leisure centre. It's how you get hostility 
and the crackling atmosphere without abuse or violence, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know, I don't know how, no. I don't know how that happens no. sometimes. And and you're not going to get that. I mean, this this crop of England, you know, this this version of England isn't going to get that in a qualifying campaign. I mean, we've seen that going back to 2016 when you know they had a terrible tournament, but they won ten games out of ten to get there. The kind of biggest ex- excitement last night was when the paper aeroplanes started coming down and everyone's cheering the ones that are kind of, you know, and you see them smashing off the side of some person's head. That's not great, obviously. But how on earth do you generate that feeling? Well, you can't and you don't need to because we're going to qualify anyway. And so the only time when you can make judgments really about the team and also about the people that follow them come come to the major tournaments, either at home, as we saw in the summer, or when we play abroad. Uh, let's let's move on to Newcastle, shall we? Oh, great! As, as you hear, you 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 have written uh, a great piece uh, and and on the podcast as well about the sound of going to a Newcastle match. So we'll hear that clip now. We rally and we implore and we screech for deliverance. Come on, man! And this one lad, this one line lad, his prayer and his religion and his mantra and the rhythm of our night. Ball in. Ball in. Ball in. The headline in another piece you've written is Ashley's Newcastle are cheap and joyless and therefore the sound of frustrated fans going to Newcastle is now the predominant noise that you hear. Yes, so there's yes, those two separate pieces obviously the, the the first one you mentioned yeah is about the sound of football it's not sort of it's not supposed to be a Newcastle piece really but the idea really is after having so long without any sound of football is to try and remind people how much we kind of consume through our ears when we go to football really not just within the stadium but outside and around it and stuff like that and it's it was a great thing to do it was our producer Ollie that was his idea and um, if people listen to it please put on headphones and try and hear the sort of surround sound however yes sort of Newcastle as a concept remain every bit as innovating and sort of distressing as uh, as always I'm 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 afraid to say really Mike Ashley you know there's never been a moment where you think he's cracked it or he's onto something here but there was a moment I think towards the start where they embraced this idea of self-sufficiency and if they'd married that with getting the best people in the in the right roles throughout the club with a mission statement that they had of sort of trying to sign young players for a decent you know amount of money and 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 sort of uh, nurturing them at the club and they were doing all this interesting stuff vaguely interesting stuff like digging boreholes at the training ground so they didn't have to pay what you know pay for their pay water and stuff like that you could have had a green clean forward thinking fleet-footed football club whose identity was self-sufficiency. And what that course means is their own academy and bringing players through. And yeah, I could have got, you know, you could have got behind that. But of course, it was immediately sort of undermined by whatever Mike Ashley's kind of latest brain fart was. And it was kind of doomed to doomed to failure. But, you know, we've now got to a situation where in their quest for self-sufficiency, 
they've made one permanent signing, one signing for the first team full stop this summer, saying that that's because uh, they only spend what they have. And really it takes them to uh, back to exactly the same position they were at the end of last season. And so they haven't strengthened their squad. In fact, their squad is weaker. And um, self-sufficiency now just means, yeah, well, I say it's, it's, it's a form of cheapness. I mean, it's, you know, they're not straining for anything. They're not striving for anything. They're ticking over. They're taking a chance that that will be enough. Self-sufficiency comes in all different shapes and forms doesn't it and and you you've mentioned some of the green clean stuff they could have done i mean equally you know a, a great deal of cost chelsea in some ways are trying to be self-sufficient with their youth academy that they then make a huge profit on on a lot of those signings that they've sold now newcastle could maybe have done that at, at a at a lower level i'm not saying you're able to flog a youth players for 40 million quid but 10 million here or 5 million here, that's part of being self-sufficient, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, finally Chelsea, well, certainly under Frank Lampard, Chelsea found a way of also creating that pathway into the into the first team. But no, they've, they, they talked about doing things like that and then haven't followed through. You know, whether it's their own acquisitions, whether it's the people they appoint, there's been no strategy there. No, I mean, self-sufficiency for them now is, as I say, it's, it's ticking over. It's doing the bare minimum. And you know they then they then kind of release this extraordinary statement on Friday, sort of justifying themselves. But it's it's a, it's it's the same old argument with Newcastle. It's you know you can be economical, you can be sensible with your money, but you can also try. And all they're doing is, I mean, by by saying we only spend what we have, I can't buy a car outright, I can't buy a house outright, but there, there are ways that I can buy those things without putting myself in financial jeopardy. Nobody wants Newcastle to go out of business, but by by using that as your only criteria, they're putting themselves in a different kind of risk. The final one, then, on, the, on this statement, this is what it looks, to, looks like to someone who doesn't know the club, okay? It looks to me like someone at the club thought, oh, Aston Villa did quite a good job by putting Christian Perslow up and explaining how Jack Grealish was sold and why they did it. Now, you, you could disagree with what he said or whatever, but at least he sat there and and explained everything to the Villa fans. We should maybe do something similar to explain our transfer window to the disgruntled fans. And in doing so, the, the line... All parties were aware as to the implications for further squad co- squad consolidation if Joe Willock was signed permanently, has somehow managed to throw him under the bus, in my opinion, and has brings back memories to me of when Manchester United sent out letters to their season ticket holders saying we're going to have to put the prices up because we've <laughs> we've signed Roy Keane to a new contract. At which point Roy Keane wasn't particularly impressed. Uh, Roy Keane being a very different individual, I would have thought to Joe Willock. But that's how that situation seems to me on the outside. Yeah, I mean, and I I completely agree. Somebody was making phone calls either on Steve Bruce's behalf or Newcastle's behalf to Leicester City late on transfer deadline day to try and get Chowdhury and on loan. And so this it reads to me like a slapdown of Steve Bruce saying everybody was aware within the building what we were trying to do. Um, and so you've got that sort of level of level of dysfunction. It'll be fascinating to see how Steve Bruce responds when he's um, when he's put up, put up in front of the 
of the media. But it's, you know, they also sort of say, well, the squad we had last season, for the last nine games, it was top six form. I mean, last nine games, is that the closest that we can get to like an open top top bus? Top six bus for last nine games. Also included Sheffield United, Fulham and yeah. Burnley, who finished 17th, I think. Yeah, last yeah. Night. And they've played three games this season in the league, playing exactly the same formation with the same squad, and they've got one point. It's bottom four. You know, it's bottom four form. So it's... it's I mean, I am I am sort of concerned. It does feel like we're building to something yet again at Newcastle. And... The point is that I mean, surely, surely there's money for a two a two million pound loan fee or a one million pound loan fee. They've cleared the decks in terms of getting people out of the squad. There should be room for manoeuvre in terms of wages. And in the last match, Newcastle's last match at home to Southampton, Steve Bruce's you know fans were calling for Steve Bruce's head for the first time inside the stadium. It wasn't the whole stadium; it was pockets of it. But he he if. If they support Steve Bruce, then he needed help. The other thing about this statement, the interesting thing, no one's put their name to it. No one's put their name to it. So what does it tell you about Newcastle? Well, it tells you it's a mess. Uh, your monthly session is now over. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for coming to see me. Hope that helped. <laughs> Always. <laughs> oh, it doesn't really. You know what? It doesn't. <laughs> no, no. Not for neither of us. No. I think we just go away feeling equally miserable. There we are. Right. See you soon. <laughs> thank you. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Straight to Hammers Rodriguez, he bounces for Calvert-Lewin, he won't be in support for him, Calvert-Lewin waiting for the pullback, and here's Rodriguez for 3-1 Everton. Harry Kane wasn't the only player who looked on the verge of a transfer, only to not get the move he seemingly wanted over the summer. James Rodriguez is another one, his status at Everton is the subject of Greg O'Keefe's column in The Athletic, Greg with us. Now, does everybody want him out? Like, do, do, does the manager want him out? Do fans want him out? What, what's the feeling of the fans towards him? No, the fans are pretty split on it, really. Um, the majority, I guess, are torn themselves, even those who, who are sort of inclined to want him to stay because they recognise this weird duality. On one hand, he's comfortably the best, most gifted player that they've seen at Everton in a long time. And a lot of them obviously haven't had the chance to see him and felt quite sort of upset by that when the prospect of him leaving at the end of the transfer window was becoming likely, or what they felt was going to be likely. But on the other hand, they're sort of trying to get behind Rafa Benitez. They're aware that he doesn't want him, he doesn't fit into how his team needs to play. And as well, it ties into the narrative of Everton not being able to really spend big in the window because of their past largesse and the fact that they've got this ridiculous, unsustainable wage bill and they're not doing enough 
commercially to kind of offset that in regards to financial fair play. So he's picking up, you know, in excess of two hundred grand a week at Everton. Is he that? Is he the highest paid player at Everton? Oh, comfortably, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably nearer two hundred fifty grand a week, as in what we understand when everything's factored in. Um, and so they're sort of like they want to see him. But they recognise he's the ultimate luxury as well because whilst they do want to watch a player so gifted and entertaining pull on a royal blue shirt, they're also kind of ever aware now, kind of as all football fans are becoming sort of amateur accountants that you know for every every game he, he's not involved, it's costing the club a lot of money that they can't really afford to be uh, at such a luxury. So when Benitez is building this Everton side, would it be fair to say that he doesn't want individuals? Yeah, absolutely be fair to say that. He's all about the team and about work ethic and about everybody sort of combining to be more than the sum of their parts. So it's in stark contrast to what Carlo Ancelotti in a way had. And he brought players to Goodison, lured them here because of his his name and his reputation and his previous relationship. So I think it's fair to say that's the only reason James Rodriguez is at Goodison because of Carlo Ancelotti. So obviously it must have been quite disconcerting for Rodriguez to you know, when he left and then where he must have just, I'd love to have been a flying on the wall when he found out it was Rafa because obviously they didn't see eye to eye at Everton. They know, I think most players in football know because Rafa's been out for a long time, what he's about. It's intensity. It's every player off the ball working hard. And I think he was in, you know, James was indulged under Ancelotti. It was, he said repeatedly, he's not here to defend He's here for what he does in the final third. And that is just at such odds with what Benitez would say. Even your best player has to be willing to track back. I think there's a sense that with from Benitez's camp, with Rodriguez in the team, sometimes without the ball, you're playing with 10 men. And that's just not going to fly. Where do Everton see themselves at the moment internally? And where do you think the fans see them externally on what's happened this summer? Because to get Damari Gray for what they've got Damari Gray with, if, if someone can work with him, Boy, have they got a player there. Yeah. Andros Townsend, I know, is a there is your good solid pro who will who will do everything possible for your team and your manager, yeah. a lieutenant on the field if if you want. But then sort of Hames if Hames goes and Solomon Rondon comes in, that feels like quite a difficult sell for a club who be, who want to be on an upward trajectory. Yeah. This feels like a slightly different mood around even the hierarchy. I don't think the overall ambition has been tempered or changed, but I think there's an increasing understanding that it was, well, I think they, I'd like to hope they knew it was never going to happen overnight, but that even a quick fix of being owned by, you know, multi-billionaire just isn't going to cut it at the moment in football. They're not able to spend, Fire I'm sure he isn't able to spend his money. They were in the curious situation of being able to hire one sort of stellar name manager and then he just left after 18 months. So, I'd say there's been a slight recalibration. They've brought Rafa in. Rafa was aware of the situation. They weren't going to be able to spend big this summer. They hope that eventually they can whittle down the wage bill and get sort of players on the fringe who aren't contributing, but on big, big money off and then back Rafa. But I think it will be more a sense of, there's almost, certainly from the, from the terraces, there's almost a sense of, let's go back for while while we need it to what made Everton such a strong unit in the sort of, let's say, last 10 years before the sort of David Moyes era ended. And that was, as you just said there, that was really smart work in recruitment in the transfer window, a massive team ethic, everybody pulling together. 
and a clear vision of how we play and where we want to be. And I think that's been lost a little bit since David, since David Moyes left. And um, Damari Gray is a perfect example. That felt like a Moyes-esque signing. And in many ways, I think Benitez and Moyes have got quite a lot in common. Maybe Benitez is the perfect manager for Everton right now. I heard somebody say that Benitez treats the club's money like it's his own. He's that careful. And I, that was definitely the case with David Moyes. And we've had too many managers in between, I guess, who've treated that money like, you know, well, very differently from that. You know, they've thrown it around with abandon, uh, with agendas for who they want to sign as opposed to uh, directors of football. And it's probably contributed to the situation the club are in now. And a, and a final quick one, going back going yeah. back to Rodriguez then. We had Meza Ozil's agent on the Business of Sport pod last week who was who was fascinating to talk to. But he told, you know, he made the point that the Turkish window stays open after the, 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 the British transfer window. Some Middle East transfer windows stay open for the very reason, I think, of people like James Rodriguez that they can try and get these players maybe on a better deal for them who haven't been able to move during the transfer window here. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, you can't rule out it because... So the piece I've written today, I've kind of tried to imagine what James Rodriguez's thought process would be like. And I think a lot of it depends how hungry he is to be playing. He's got his imperative, you would imagine, is to convince the Colombia manager that he, he can. He, he's still fit enough. He still um, cares enough. He's, still, he's playing regular first-team football and get back into that squad. It was a huge blow to his very being to be left out of the Copa America. Sumter, he released like, you know, a sort of six, 700 word statement about it. You know, he was affronted to his core. I think he was called, said he was emotionally disturbed by it. So he needs to be playing. If, if he's got a real sense that he's not able to do or unwilling to do what that is required to play at Everton, then maybe he will change his stance up until the end of our transfer window in the UK, which was, I'm not going to concede a penny of these wages. So I'll, I'll go but I'm not going to go on a reduced wage somewhere else. You know, that's that was his position. And you would imagine that club, no clubs in Turkey would be able to pay matches wages. You would imagine. I don't think there'd be any a transfer fee involved. Everton would just want to get get that wages, get those wages off their, their wage base. But you never know. He might be suddenly prepared to accept a payoff, perhaps, and uh, a reduced salary if it means playing. But... Um, you know, he could have done that at Porto and gone and played in a, you know, a league he's been in before, um, in a really exciting Champions League group with AC Milan and Liverpool, Atletico. Uh, he didn't fancy that, so I'm not sure I can see him going to Turkey. But you never know. Great stuff, Greg. Thank you. We'll let you go. Thanks, lads. Bye, really man. appreciate it. Enjoyed Cheers. it. Thank you. Now, late on Sunday, Brazil and Argentina's World Cup qualifier was abandoned just minutes after kickoff after Brazilian health officials objected to the participation of three Argentine players they believe broke quarantine rules. Ed Malian has written a thorough explainer that you can read now on The Athletic. He sent us this voice note as well, explaining the chaos in Sao Paulo. What has been crossed here, like several lines, whether it comes to borders, whether it comes to... Uh, you know, certain governmental agencies overreaching perhaps, you know, lots of politics intertwined. Um, but the idea of, you know, several bureaucrats from a country's public health authority running onto a field of a football game of a World Cup qualifier, one of the most famous international fixtures on the planet, to try and stop the game and get four players deported is 
one of the more insane things we've seen in recent years. Most of the hours before kickoff, like the several hours before kickoff, were filled with discussion about whether these four players could play or not. And, you know, I don't think Argentina and Lionel Scaloni, who has been, you know, let's be honest, Scaloni this week has been tough on the Premier League clubs who forbade uh, their players from travelling. But they're pretty robust. You know, there's no reason to choose an ineligible player. And I think if Scaloni thought the three players he selected, Buendia, of course, was not on the bench, um, or even in the squad for the, for the actual game, but three players were selected. And if Scaloni had any inclination they were actually ineligible and would cause Argentina any sporting penalty, then there's no chance that it would have happened. So what we're left with is essentially some health bureaucrats from the Brazilian government, um, which isn't having the greatest of times itself at the moment. Health officials storming on to a pitch with Lionel Messi and Neymar on it and saying this game can't go ahead. And they succeeded. That's probably the worst thing about it. They succeeded. And by the time the weak statement from Conmebol came along, passing the buck on to FIFA to make a decision about it, what we saw was, you know, the Argentina team going straight to the airport and flying back to Buenos Aires where they played Bolivia later this week. You know, it was just one of those incidents which was, it was sad because it needs that unique cocktail of just incompetence and largesse that unfortunately we find in a lot of these situations. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. So let's end the pod by talking about uh, Norwich and the Athletics. Norwich City writer Michael Bailey joins us now because you've written, Michael, a, a piece 
at the start of the international break, outlining what Daniel Farker needs to fix. Is it fix or sort out? I don't know, before the Premier League returns. Yeah, I suppose it was like a to-do list. And it, it, based on the fact that Daniel Farker has obviously had a very good time of it at Norwich, uh, mostly, but his win percentage is basically half what it would be in that first period up to the international break. So it seems like he often works a bit of magic in this period. And clearly with Norwich losing their first three games, he needs to do it again. So I was just curious as to what it might be that he would look at this time. Now I have to say, looking at the stats, they weren't quite as horrific as I was expecting, which I suppose comes from the fact that they have played Liverpool and they have played Manchester City. but And Leicester, Michael. Le- I, I, you know, Leicester were, Leicester were in contention for a Champions League spot right until the end, the final game of the season. So they, they've had... They've had three of the the top... Did they finish fifth? They've had three of the top five in their first three games. They have. I, I, without wishing to throw out a prediction, I, I'd be curious to know to see if Leicester reached those heights by the end of, of May. I think they had a few issues and I think a lot of people came away from Carrow thinking Norwich maybe missed a, an opportunity as well. So, um, But, you know, they, they, given who they've played... Um, you know they they're not too far off maybe being better defensively they they do need to tighten up but i do feel like they need to cause teams more issues in their own box they haven't had as many touches as anyone else in the opposition penalty area by quite a distance so i think and watching them as well you can although they use the end of the transfer window to bring in the two defensive recruits that they've really needed all summer i wouldn't say they're quite there going forwards either i think there's they they, they need to hone that in and they also had a difficult pre-season. So I'm hoping that Daniel Farker, as he has done before, will they'll just bed in some of that fitness and maybe look a bit a bit more powerful over the coming month or month and a half. Is power an issue going forward? Because we often have talked about Norwich's creativity in the past, and I realise that some of those players are, are no longer there, Buendia being a prime example. But is it is it a is it more than just ability that's required I think they've got more power than they had two years ago throughout the midfield I just feel that they're kind of a bit raw at the moment and they haven't got the balance right and and maybe they've haven't quite got the nous to make the most of that power at this level at the moment so again I'm, I'm hoping that Daniel Farker who has been a highly rated coach Stuart Webber thinks he's going to go on to huge things in the future Norwich obviously really believe in him because they've kept with him but also given him a new four-year contract so I think at this point now, this is the biggest challenge for him. He he has to prove over these coming weeks that he can coach this side and those, I would say, better raw materials into a side that can score goals and concede fewer of them in the Premier League. I mean, you mentioned the stats there for, from the game. The Athletics uh, Football Analytics Department writer said that Norwich actually had a fantastic window when they looked at the signings based on based on the analytics. So that probably heaps a little bit more pressure on well not the not the article but if you if I mean well it might they do, do you know? that they do but, do that yeah yeah but um that now this is a bit more on Farker oh no yeah. I, I completely agree and it's it's fascinating for me because there is this continuing narrative that Norwich obviously want to build obviously most people see them as a yo-yo club but there has been a, a strident declaration that they really do want to stay up this year you know for the first time I think given the window expenditure albeit a lot of it you know, replacing the hole left by Emi Buendia, but they've still, you know, spent a lot of that money and then some. I think it would represent a degree of failure if they go down this time, which I feel wasn't at the club uh, two years ago. So that puts, you know, this is this is Daniel Farker's time to really prove 
what he's got and, and the, the team need to evolve over the course of the season, which is something I don't think they really did do two years ago. So for me, it's it's quite a complex season of where Norwich's expectations lie and, and the result that comes at the end of it. What are the fans' expectations? And I realise I'm lumping them. I say this every time, you know, I've just lumped the whole of the Norwich fan base in together, but... Yeah, <laughs> well, why not? Um, uh, well, split then in that case. But I think... Yeah, um, okay, yeah. I think um, for, my, for my money, if Norwich go down this time, it won't have the same reaction. I think all the way along, even from the point they got relegated, it's been about building, which has kind of brought this this idea that this time they'll be better. So I suppose, you know, the closer they get, the less stick they're going to get from a portion of the fan base. But there is this there is this underlying, I think, feeling that let's go and do it this year. And also Daniel Farker has been backed this year. It's not that they haven't got the tools to do it. I think, again, tapping into maybe the looking at the window and how Norwich have recruited players from other top flights and players that are regular internationals, there, there is more about them. There are more options. Daniel Farker can't just pick an 11 and go, I haven't really got anything else. He is going to have to balance when he plays Josh Sargent and uh, when he brings in Christos Scholis and things like this. So um, it will be fascinating how he deals with that. And I think that creates an expectation that wasn't there two years ago across the club. I don't think it necessarily means that Daniel Farker's job is on the line if they're bottom at Christmas, but I think the way it... Um, the way it will be perceived by the fan base especially will be will be very different and it will be interesting how everyone copes with that. And where's Stuart Weber in all of this and and, and his immediate future? Oh, what a question. I mean, no one, no one, no, <laughs> I don't think Stuart Sorry. knows. No, it's a great question. And we're, I've been asking it for about a year now, um, but I don't think Stuart knows. I don't think anyone knows. I think they're, they're looking at things and I know they're in the process that they'll probably announce bits and bobs that provide Stuart some support with the job he's doing now, whether that manifests into him signing and staying at the club for a little bit longer, whether he opts to take a bit of time out of football and do some other things, because I don't think football is the be all and end all for him. I almost think that's more likely than him, you know, leaving at the end of his contract in June and going to another football club. I think he could do anything. And I think to that end, he's not really sure what it is. And so for now, at least Norwich have got this window out of the way. They seem to have done a decent job of it on the face of it. So, I do wonder if we might get a bit more clarity over the coming several months, but it's hard to say because I don't think anyone really knows at the moment, himself included. And just a final one on on, on all the new signings and how they'll bed in. You have, you have spoken to one of them, haven't you? You have spoken to Josh Sargent. Josh Sargent, yeah. We're not allowed to call him John. I think I did that no. for the first week in a bit. <laughs> um, yeah, he's a lovely guy. I think um, it was interesting speaking to people when they signed him because they were like, oh, not sure about him in the Premier League. And I think that just comes from his goal record. So it was nice to talk to him about that and how he likes to try and get himself involved in the game. But also he's he's a 21-year-old who's still sort of trying to figure himself out. And I feel like Daniel Farker's got a really good reputation for, for bringing on young talents. And his how he evolves will be interesting because there's, there's an argument at the moment that the way Norwich are setting up slightly different formation, a bit more direct attackers, um, that actually might play into Josh's hands more than, say, someone like Tamu Pukki who needs a number 10 or someone feeding through balls for him all the time. So... It will be interesting how that dynamic plays out, but he's a good man. He's really young. He's almost played a hundred, you know, top top flight performances in, in sort of the five when well, the Bundesliga anyway. So how he develops will be really interesting, and obviously there'll be a lot of interest in him from the states as well because I know that they carry quite a bit of expectation on his shoulders too. Good stuff. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. Mm-hmm. 
That's it. Thanks very much for listening. To read all the articles we've discussed today, head to theathletic.com slash footballpod for a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. Uh, Dan Bardell and Flo Lloyd-Hughes are here tomorrow discussing Laurie Whitwell's piece about the fact that North Korea, Afghanistan, Cuba, Turkmenistan and the UK are the only places you won't be able to watch Ronaldo's return live on TV. Also in the piece, one contributor, I don't know who that may be, does explain that you will be able to listen to the game live on BBC Radio 5 Live in the UK. Uh, I'm back on Thursday uh, on this feed with the Business of Sport pod with Matt Slater. See you then. The Athletic.